North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dr. Low Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, and I'm a naturopathic doctor, which means that I'm trained both in conventional medicine as well as natural medicine. And a big difference, I would say, in what naturopathic medicine offers is that we really address the underlying causes of disease rather than just treating the symptoms. So it's more than just giving an herb rather than a medication. And if you want to know more about naturopathic doctors, definitely check out naturopathic.org. Thanks for tuning in to this show. Last week's show was awesome. I have to say that it was the best stats of any show I've had so far. Um, I'm in the top ten in the health section of Block Talk Radio, and that's out of almost a 1,000 shows. So I feel very lucky to be in the midst of such amazing, um, you know, radio show hosts. I'm, I'm amazed. It's only been like three months that this show's been going on. So let's see here. DrLaurenNoel.com. It is up and running. It's a very basic site, but I got something at least out there. So check it out. Uh, the Twitter page, twitter.com slash drlaurennoel, facebook.com, drlaurennoel. Uh, very cool event coming up. Jenna Phillips, celebrity trainer in L.A., she's going to be hosting a 30-day um, skinny jeans challenge starting next week, and I'll be blogging for her program each week for the month. So if you're interested in doing that, basically you just uh, do some measurements and do paleo for a month and then send your measurements in at the end, and whoever wins, gets a pair of skinny jeans. So check her out on Facebook, Jenna Phillips, if you want more information. Some upcoming shows. Very excited about next next week's show. I will have Julia Ross on. She is the author of The Mood Cure and The Diet Cure. She was very important in my training. Uh, my background really is uh, psychology, and so learning about how food affects the mental, emotional wellness is a big interest of mine. So check that show out. That will be next Tuesday night. The following week, I will have Allison Seebecker, naturopathic doctor, on, and we will be discussing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The long name is a very common condition that's very underdiagnosed and can have symptoms really similar to um, irritable bowel syndrome, so, you know, constipation and diarrhea, all kinds of things, and even very vague symptoms like muscle pain and joint pain. So that will be a very important show to check out as well. The following week, T.S. Wiley, I'm so excited to have her on. I got to hang out with her a couple weeks ago at a conference, and she's hilarious. She is the author of Lights Out. We'll be talking all about sleep, the importance of sleep, and how it's associated with all different conditions if you don't get enough sleep in your life. So, And then the following week, I know I'm really projecting out to the future, but I'm, I'm excited about this coming show too, is Dr. DeLapp. He's a naturopathic doctor who specializes in dermatology. We'll talk about all about skin health and how naturopathic medicine can, can address the, uh, the, the health of your skin. I'm sorry, that's my dog barking. She's been crazy today. Tonight's topic, in my opinion, is one of the most important topics we'll have on the show, if not the most important. And you will understand all about that, you know, why it's so important um, listening to Dr. O'Brien speak. Dr. O'Brien, I had the opportunity of hearing him at a conference a couple years ago um, talking about autoimmune disease. And the... Uh, you know, the crowd that was at this conference were already very much into integrative medicine and thinking about, you know, alternatives to health and everything. And just it was so well-received. These doctors were just 
it blew their socks off, and it was something that, you know, we're already in line with this way of thinking. So just just a little preview of what you're in store for tonight. Dr. Thomas O'Brien is a nationally recognized speaker and workshop leader specializing in gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. He's a Sherlock Holmes for chronic disease and metabolic disorders. He's a clinician par excellence in treating chronic disease and metabolic disorders from a functional medicine perspective. He holds teaching faculty positions for the Institute for Functional Medicine and the National University of Life Sciences. He's always one of the most respected, highly appreciated speakers, and his passion is in teaching the many manifestations of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease as they occur inside and outside of the intestines, and you'll learn all about that tonight. So with that said, Dr. O'Brien, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, Dr. Noel. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to have you. I'm sorry my dog oh, is Oh, thank barking. you. I I appreciate the applause from your dog. That's very yeah, kind. Yeah, she's a huge fan. She can't believe you're on the show, so she's just, like, really freaking yeah, out. Right. <laughs> Thank you. So let me ask you, Dr. O'Brien, what got you into this specialty that you've chosen? Why gluten? Well, I, I heard a presentation by a uh, functional neurologist named Dr. Uh, David Perlmutter. He's from Naples, Florida, in 2001. And one of the cases that he showed was an article that had just been published in the British Medical Journal of 10 patients with unrelenting migraines. Nothing had been able to help, and these patients, on average, had been out of work for eight years. Eight years of being unable to work, and they were on workman's comp. And if someone's on workman's comp and unable to work for eight years, you, you, you know that they're not malingerers. They're not faking this. And somehow the thought came up for me, what about those families of those 10 people? What about the kids in those families? What's it like living in a house where dad has such a severe headache, he can't work? And had they gone through their life savings, had they gone through their retirement accounts, it just impacted on me. And, so I, and as Dr. Perlmutter presented the cases, Every one of them had gluten sensitivity, and when the doctor took gluten out of their diet, seven out of ten never had a headache again after eight years of being so riddled by headaches that they couldn't work. I ordered that paper, I read that paper, and um, I then ordered the references in the back and read those, and then I was on my way. Wow. And when was this? This was in 2001. Wow. So you have been... You know, ten the last ten years you've been into this gluten world, and you know I was watching your uh, DVDs for the last couple of days and just really getting prepared for the show. And there's so much. It's amazing how so many well-respected medical organizations, like the Mayo Clinic, um, you know, uh, the American Medical Association, and so many other organizations, they recognize gluten sensitivity as one of the most common lifelong disorders in the U.S. And why is it that it's so underdiagnosed? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that traditionally our doctors have been trained that gluten sensitivity equals celiac disease. And the definition of celiac disease requires that the, the shags in the intestines, they're called microvilli, your intestines are lined with shag carpeting. And they're, they're called microvilli. And celiac disease is when the shags wear down and you've got berber. And our doctors have been trained that if you don't have berber, you don't have celiac disease, and so you don't have a problem. So even when the blood tests would say there's a problem with wheat here, 
if they did the endoscopy, which is the test that looks at the small intestine tissue, if there was not a wearing down of the shags, they said, don't worry about that blood test. It's probably wrong. It's okay to eat wheat because your shags are not worn down. What we now know is that that's the end stage of the problem. That's the last stage, not the first indicator. And it can take years before your shags wear down completely. In the meantime, other tissues in your body may be suffering. Hmm. So this is in the research. Why is this not correlating to what's happening in the doctor visit? Well, that's a really good million-dollar question, and I don't have the answer for that, except that our doctors have the best of intent, and when they read the medical journals, they don't read the journal cover to cover. They may get two or three or four journals a month in their practice, in their busy practice, and they look through the index, and they pick the articles they want, they want to read, usually that relates to their area of specialty. So, And that's understandable. All, all specialists do that. So even if there's an article about gluten sensitivity or celiac disease in the dermatology journal or in the neurology journal, they may not read it because they're reading about multiple sclerosis because that neurologist specializes in MS. And he won't read the articles that talk about the mechanism by which any neurological condition may be caused by a gluten sensitivity, including MS, because the title doesn't say MS and gluten in it. So they may not read that article. So it's not your doctor's fault. It's not their fault. They, are, they have the best of intent. They're following their, their heart and their knowledge base. Now, if they have exposure to this and if they choose to ignore it, then it's their fault. Got it. And so listening to your, your DVDs, the problem with gluten, it can affect so many different body systems, and it's so much beyond a gut issue, which is what people typically think is gluten affects your gut, and if I don't have gut symptoms, then I don't have a problem with it. What's the reality with this? Well, the reality is, let me give you a little background information first. Autoimmune diseases are the number three cause of getting sick. That's morbidity and mortality, meaning death. The number three cause of death in the world today after um, heart disease and cancer, number three. Autoimmune diseases, now that's like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, multiple sclerosis, um, scleroderma, Sjogren's, Hashimoto's thyroid disease. There are many different autoimmune diseases. Autoimmune diseases are ten times more common if you have a gluten sensitivity than if you don't. So the number three cause of death is 10 times more common if you have a gluten sensitivity. Children that are diagnosed with celiac disease, that's when the wheat allergy is affecting the gut and the shags wear down. Children diagnosed with celiac disease have a threefold increase of long-term early death. On a gluten-free diet, they still have a threefold increased risk of dying early compared to children that don't have celiac disease. So this, this kills people. This causes miscarriages, this shortens lifespans, this increases getting sick, so many different conditions. There's no tissue in the body that may not be affected by this. Now, it's not that every tissue is affected. It depends on your genetic vulnerabilities and how you've lived your life as to where it's going to manifest itself. But any tissue in the body is vulnerable to a negative effect if you have gluten sensitivity. 
I'm just picturing what the listeners are thinking right now is that what's what's the deal with gluten? Why is this such a problem now? We've been eating these foods for, for decades, you know, hundreds of years now. So what's happening? Why is this happening now? Well, that's a really good question. And some people often ask me, they'll say, you know, it's in the Bible. Bread is a staff of life. And my answer is, with all due respect, no one on the planet is eating the bread that Jesus Christ ate. That wheat is not available anymore, and the wheat has been cultivated so that it it grows quicker. It, there's more tonnage per acre for the farmers, and in order to do that, there's more gluten in the wheat than there ever has been in the past. It's called the 50-50 rule. In the last 50 years, the gluten content has gone up by 50%, and it's, it's because our farmers want better crops. They want less uh, uh, disease-vulnerable crops. And the gluten content goes up because of that. So what you're saying is that um, bread is so different now, the gluten in it is so different now that it's wreaking havoc in people's bodies, correct? That's correct. It's very difficult to digest that new form of wheat that's come out in the last 50 years that's developed. It's very difficult for the human digestive tract to break it down and digest it. You see, you're supposed to digest proteins into the individual amino acids that make them up. Think of amino acids as the building block of protein. Think of a brick wall. And the job of our digestive system is to take the mortar out in between the bricks so that each brick, each amino acid, can be absorbed through the intestines into the bloodstream, and then our body uses those amino acids to make muscle tissue, to make nerve hormones called neurotransmitters to make testosterone, to make estrogen, that we need these amino acids for all function in our lives. But what happens when you eat a protein that your body can't break down very well, it's like someone took a a sledgehammer to the brick wall and broke it into big clumps instead of little bricks. It's 15 bricks, 33 bricks, 17 bricks. And our bodies can't digest that and break it down and use it as a food. The result is it causes inflammation in the intestines. And as you know, inflammation is the mechanism for all degenerative disease at the cellular level inside the cell. doesn't matter if it's cancer or diabetes or heart disease. At the cellular level, there's always inflammation. When you eat these foods that the body can't digest, it produces inflammation in the belly. That inflammation in the belly causes something called intestinal permeability, or the slang term is leaky gut. When you have a leaky gut, now these big clumps of bricks get into the bloodstream and produce inflammation throughout the body. And then wherever your genetic weakness is, that's where you manifest the symptoms. It might be your liver. It might be your brain. It might be your eyes. It might be your muscles. It just might be your bones. It just depends on what your genetic vulnerability is. What's the what's the likelihood that this affects me or affects my family? How common is this? Well, that's a really good question. You know, the studies on celiac disease, which is when it's affecting the intestines and the shags are worn down, is about one in a hundred, just a little over one in a hundred. But that's the end stage of when it affects the intestines. We know that with most autoimmune diseases, um, celiac disease is is present is somewhere between four and 14% of all the autoimmune diseases they look at, but that's just celiac disease. So for gluten sensitivity, 
we now are starting to get the numbers back. It's looking like it's somewhere around six or seven out of ten people will have a sensitivity to gluten. It's that common. This is a foundational problem. It's a foundation means it's at the base of so many different symptoms that people suffer. And they go in and they get their symptoms treated, and the foundational problem may be that they have a gluten sensitivity that's triggering all of it. Crazy. That, that's one of the reasons why I said that I really believe this topic is one of the most important, if not the most important topic I'll have on my show because, you know, we could talk about different diseases all day long, but let's go to the cause of what's going on with these diseases at a foundational level, like you're saying. And gluten, I really believe, and what I've seen with my patients, is that this is at the cause of so many different diseases and even the, the top causes of death in our country. You know, even cancer and, and heart disease, I mean, these, these are related to gluten intolerance, right, or gluten sensitivity, I should say, right? Well, that's a very good point. Dr. Noel, and what we know is that breast cancer and prostate cancer appear to be a little less frequent with people with celiac disease, but the other cancers are more frequent, especially cancers of the digestive tract, the stomach, the small intestine, colon cancer. They're more common if you have gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. And you're absolutely right that so many different diseases may have gluten sensitivity as the gasoline on the fire. Now, we always want to be careful not to say that gluten sensitivity causes all disease. That's silly to say that. But gluten sensitivity may be a contributor to every disease that we've looked at so far. Every single disease may have gluten sensitivity contributing to it or fueling it, firing it. It doesn't matter what the symptoms are. It really doesn't matter. We're talking to Dr. Thomas O'Brien on Dr. Low Radio, 818-495-6919. That's 818-495-6919 if you have a question. Um, I'm interested in what are the the downstream effects of having a gluten sensitivity? What are the, um, the consequences of having this? Um, how far spread can these, you know, consequences be? What can it cause? Let me give you an example. Oh, sure. This example will put in perspective. It'll take about three minutes, I think, to go through this. This is about my godmother. We got a call one day, and Emily's on the way to the hospital. I said, what's wrong? We don't know, some, some type of stomach pain. It turns out that when they, she got to the emergency room, they discovered that she had 4% of her liver left functioning, 4%, that 96% of her liver had been killed off. And she never knew it, that it was just not working. It was advanced cirrhosis. Now, all the blood in the body goes through the liver. Now, this person, my godmother, had all the blood in the body going through 4% of the liver. When you have 100% of the blood in the body going through 4% of the blood vessels in the liver, and that 4% of the blood vessels are only supposed to handle 4% of the blood, but now they're having to handle 100% of the blood, what happens to the blood vessels? They burst. They swell up and burst because of the pressure. She was bleeding out. That's called internal bleeding, internal hemorrhaging. They, she had severe pain. They rush her to the hospital. They find out she's bleeding out. They save her life. Emergency surgery save her life. Turns out that for her entire life, my godmother, when she'd go in for a physical, 
she would say, uh, her doctor would say, Emily, you're as healthy as a horse, but you have to stop drinking. And my Aunt Emily would say, I don't drink. (laughs) And the reason the doctor would say that was because she had mildly elevated liver enzymes. And as you know, Dr. Doyle, that's very common to see in practice. You run a standard blood test, and the patient may have mildly elevated liver enzymes. No indicators of a liver problem, no symptoms, no other indicators whatsoever, just mildly elevated liver enzymes. And what most doctors do in that situation, if they can't find any other indicators of a problem, is they wait and see. Well, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for a bigger problem to show itself. And my Aunt Emily did not drink. It used to be a joke at the family weddings. I'm half Italian. This is the Italian side of the family. And, you know, the bride and groom, we toast the bride and groom, and everyone's so happy and and holding up, uh, you know, a toast. Our our Aunt Emily would hold up a glass of water with as much love and, and compassion and well, good wishes for the bride and groom as everyone else. She lift up a glass of water, and we toast the bride and groom, and then someone would always say, Aunt Emily, what are you doing in this room? You're not drinking wine. You don't drink champagne. You're not one of us. You need to leave. And we'd all laugh, and we'd tease her a little bit. She'd never drink. She would never let alcohol touch her lips. The next year, she'd go for a physical. The doctor would say, Emily, you're as healthy as a horse, but you've got to stop drinking. She would say, what's the matter with you? I told you last year. I don't drink. And that's how she talked to her doctor. She was 84 years old. The doctor would laugh a little bit and then go on to some other topic because he didn't know what to do with mildly elevated liver enzymes. He didn't have any answers for that. Well, when you have uh, liver enzymes are a measure of dead liver cells. And there's a normal amount of dead liver cells. We lose some cells every day. We make some cells every day. There's a normal amount of enzyme activity in the liver. That's okay. Perfectly normal. My Aunt Emily had mildly elevated liver enzymes. What does that mean? It means she's losing more cells than she's making. And this went on year after year after year after year until finally, so she's losing a little bit more of her liver, a little bit more of her liver, a little bit more of her liver. Until finally, one day, she's got 4% of her liver left, and the straw that broke the camel's back, one of those blood vessels burst. She's bleeding out. She's got severe pain. They rush her to the hospital. They find out she's got this advanced diseased liver, and they do emergency surgery to save her life. I called. Well, after, the, after the first surgery, I called and said, what happened? What happened? And when I heard what happened, I said to her daughter, Cindy, have the doctor do this blood test. And it was the blood test for celiac disease. And she said, why would I do that? And I said, because this might be a contributor to your mom's problem. I didn't hear anything. Two weeks later, I called back. Cindy, what happened? She said, oh, Tommy. They call me Tommy. He said, Tommy, the doctor (laughs) said you're probably a nice man, but you really don't know what you're talking about. Ouch. So So he didn't do the blood test. Now, I would have liked to have said something to that doctor. You yeah, know, one I of bet. the things I would Yeah, you bet. One of the things I would have liked to have said is, Doctor, you're a hepatologist, that's a liver specialist. Do you read the journal Hepatology? Did you happen to read in November of two thousand seven the article from Mayo Clinic that's entitled The Liver in Celiac Disease, where they say mildly elevated liver enzymes may be the only indicator of celiac disease. Did you read that article, doctor? And, of course, he didn't, or else he would have run that blood test immediately. He didn't. So 
I, uh, in the next few months, my godmother had six emergency surgeries. Her blood vessels kept bursting. She's 84 years old. What do you do with a woman who's only got 4% of a liver left functioning? You know, they're, they're not going to give her a new liver. They give that to 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who have a chance for a nice long life, not to an 84-year-old. She couldn't handle the surgery anyway. So after six emergency surgeries over the next two months, they said, Emily, make your peace. We can't do any more surgery. And she said, how much time do I have left? And they said, we don't know, two weeks, two months, we don't know. So that's when I flew to Pittsburgh to say goodbye to my godmother. And that's not a very easy thing to do, to say goodbye to someone who's known you longer than you've known you. And she seems okay, weak from a number of surgeries, but basically okay. So I spent three days there, you know, and one morning, I woke up, I wake up early every morning, and I woke up and I went out in the living room and she's sitting on the sofa. I said, Emily, what are you doing up so early? She said, I can't sleep. I said, lay down. She said, I'm too old for you. <laughs> that, that was my godmother. <laughs> and I said, I know, I know, but if I can't have your body, I want your blood. Lay down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had brought a barrel, the needle, and the tube. I drew her blood. And I called the laboratory and said, this is Dr. O'Brien. Come get this blood now. And they did. She's a celiac patient. Wow. So I had a meeting with the family, and I, and I, um, I explained to them. And I showed them the article because I brought my computer with me, and I showed them the article. And I said, this, Emily, is likely what killed off the liver over many, many years. You have an allergy to wheat. <coughs> Excuse me. I said, don't. I don't know how much time you've got left, Aunt Emily. They say two weeks, two months. I don't know. But I can promise you, whatever the amount of time is you've got left, you're going to feel much better. You're going to feel healthier if you don't eat wheat anymore. And she said, okay, okay. She didn't live two weeks. She didn't live two months. She lived a year and a half. A year and a half on no, on no medication whatsoever. None. Because we put the fire out. There was no more fire. And she was quite weak from six surgeries. But she lived a year and a half. And every day, the family was over there. Every single day, the family was there. Uh, we have a large family in Pittsburgh. And I'd call because I'm on the road traveling. Hi, Aunt Emily. She said, Tommy, where are you? I'm in Seattle. I said, oh, he's in Seattle. And I hear in the background, hey, hello, hello, go fishing, go fishing. You know, there was always people over there with her for a year and a half every day. She was part of the family. They just included her in everything, laughing and joking and you know, crying and all the arguments and whatever was going on in a, in a vivacious Italian family. They called me and they said, uh, any day now, Tommy, any day. And I immediately flew to Pittsburgh. Advanced liver disease usually progresses to liver cancer. It's called hepatocellular carcinoma. It did for her. Hepatocellular carcinoma usually progresses to brain cancer. It did for her. But she didn't have any pain until the last few days. But she was down to 65 pounds because the cancer kept eating away at her. 65 pounds. 
So I went to say goodbye, you know, and I sat at the side of her bed and I was crying. I was literally crying. Looked in her eyes, you know, I had my head in her lap, she's stroking my hair and I lift my head up and we look in each other's eyes and she looked at me and she said, Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. <laughs> wow. And and then and then she looked me in the eye and she got this fire in her eye and she said, You tell him, Tommy, you tell him. And I said, I will, Aunt Emily, I'll tell him. And that's why I'm on your show. And that's why I I travel the world talking about this, is because this kills people. And she died about 10 days later. And her death certificate said hepatocellular carcinoma. It should have said hepatocellular carcinoma secondary to celiac disease. Your parents die of heart attacks. Sometimes it should say heart attacks secondary to celiac disease. Alzheimer's, secondary to gluten sensitivity. Not every person every time, but it is so frequent that this is what's throwing gasoline on the fire that causes the degenerative disease that people eventually die from for many, many people. Many people. And as you say, Dr. Noel, in your practice, you're startled at how many people get better just by getting gluten out of their diets, how their bodies start to change. And now there's new blood tests out that are very, very accurate to identify this. So the whole world is going to change in this next few years around gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. Well, I'm very excited to uh, share with the listeners about these new tests. Uh, Before I do that, I want to open up to the phone lines. I have a caller from the 508 area code. Uh, So I'll go ahead and bring the caller on. Caller, are you there? Caller from the 508, are you there? I'm here. Great. What's your name? Where Hello. are you calling from? Yeah. Lisa, I'm calling from Massachusetts. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. What's your question? Hi there. My question is, if someone has a gluten intolerance that leads to other food intolerances, such as casein, can eliminating the gluten reverse the casein intolerance? And if it is possible, would something like raw fermented dairy be more likely to be tolerated than a pasteurized dairy product? Very good questions, Lisa. That's three different Three separate questions. Let's break them down. The first one, once your immune system produces antibodies to a food, it produces something called memory B cells. Those B cells are there for a lifetime. And so once you've produced a sensitivity to dairy, it doesn't matter whether it's raw or not, the memory B cells will react because the protein structures are very, very similar. So if a child is raised on raw milk, it's, and I'm not advocating that. Uh, some do that, and you know, make your own judgment call about it, so I'm not advocating that here on the show. But if a child's raised with raw milk, there's a chance that when they stop gluten, what the studies show, you see, uh, and, but not for casein, it's for the lac- lactase or lactose. The, the sugar molecule in dairy is called lactose. That molecule is broken down by an enzyme produced in the outside lining of the shags, the microvilli, uh, that's called the epithelial lining, and that's where lactase is produced. Lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose. So for people that have lactose intolerance, when they get off of gluten and stop the fire in the intestines, the intestines will heal, your shags will heal. 
And the studies have shown six months is not enough time, a year. It takes a year of gluten-free for the epithelial lining to heal enough so that it begins producing lactase in adequate amounts so that people lose their lactose intolerance. If you have a casein sensitivity, that's an immune reaction. That's not an intolerance because of a lack of enzymes. That's an immune reaction. And then you have memory B cells. And casein cross-reacts with gluten. What that means is that the amino acids in casein, the building blocks of the proteins in casein, is similar enough to the protein blocks in the protein, to the amino acid building blocks in the protein of gluten, the casein blocks are similar enough that the memory B cells recognize the casein as gluten and keep making the antibodies. Wow. And would that be the same for dairy from goats? Unfortunately, it requires, what the study suggests is 62% homolog similarity. And what that means, it has to look at at least 62% or more like human breast milk in order to not stimulate an immune response. The only milks that I've ever seen, I've read about, that are 62% or higher are donkey milk and reindeer milk and and camel milk. (laughs) Those are the only ones. Can't get that at the farmer's market. <laughs> well, unfortunately, right. But, you know, sometimes you do hear about ass milk, and uh, that's donkey. You know, that's donkey milk. Uh, you sometimes hear about that. Not often, but you occasionally do. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Thanks Lisa. Your question. Dr. O'Brien, I've never heard of ass milk. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> that was pretty yeah. funny. <laughs> well, I saw, I, saw a, I saw a study on it about four or five days ago. Yeah, no, it's definitely the quote of the day. Um, so, <laughs> caught me off guard there. Um, those who are listening, if you'd like to ask a question, 818-495-6919, 818-495-6919. Dr. O'Brien, who should get tested for gluten sensitivity? That's a really good question, and the answer, I quote Dr. Rodney Ford, who's a pediatric gastroenterologist. He's been studying this since the early 90s. He's an expert on this. And when Dr. Ford is asked the question on stage, he responds, he says, well, and he's kind of a short fella, you know, kind of, he's, he's from New Zealand, he's got this accent, he says, well, you know, that's a very good question. I think people should be tested for gluten who are sick. If you are sick, you should be tested for gluten. And what he's saying is that everyone who does not feel 100% because there's no system of the body that may not be affected by this. And if, it, if your system of the body is affected, it may be your thyroid, and you've got cold hands and feet, and you're sluggish, and you wear socks to bed, and you can't lose weight even if you try because your thyroid's not working right, and you go to the doctor, you get a blood test for thyroid, and the blood test comes back normal. Ask our holistic doctors how often that occurs, how often patients come in and say that. It's very, very frequent because the blood tests looking for thyroid disease are not going to find thyroid disease. But if you look for gluten sensitivity, you likely will find it. And gluten sensitivity in that example is an emergency brake on thyroid functions. Like you're driving your car, but the emergency brake is on. And so you check the engine. The engine's okay. You check the transmission. The transmission's okay. You check thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone's okay. 
You check TSH, which is the pituitary, tell them the thyroid doesn't work, TSH is okay, but the emergency brake is on. There's inflammation in there, and it's coming from gluten sensitivity. Not for everyone that has this scenario, but for many people that do. Or it could be your muscles, or it could be your bones. That's why in your bones, the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2006 said every patient with osteoporosis needs to be checked for celiac disease, as celiac disease could be the cause of the osteoporosis. So I asked doctors in my seminars, doctors, if the Annals of Internal Medicine say every patient with, uh, with osteoporosis needs to be checked for celiac disease, what's the first thing you're going to do for your patients who have diagnosed with osteoporosis? Are you going to give them calcium? No. You check them first for gluten sensitivity to see if that's the mechanism that's causing the vitamin D or the calcium deficiency. Of course you give them the nutrients to help build bone, but if this mechanism is in there, if they're on fire, it's not going to work. And those are the people that are on Fosamax or the bisphosphonates or they're taking calcium and vitamin D and they do a recheck on their osteoporosis with a DEXA scan two years later, it's not any better. Or it's, 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 it's slowing down a little, but it's not reversing. Because there's still fire in the belly that gets through the intestines because of intestinal permeability causing fire in the bones, inflammation in the bones that's causing the osteoporosis. And you said that kids who have celiac disease should be tested for osteoporosis too, right? Well, uh, no, no, no. not. Oh, excuse me. L let me understand your question. Kids that have celiac disease, should they, they be checked for bone density? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The, studies, the, the studies say that at least 50 to 70% of these children with gluten sensitivity have osteopenia, which is weakened bones, or full-blown osteoporosis already. That is crazy. 50, so 50 to 70% of them. It is so yeah. common. As a matter of fact, in the Journal of Attention Disorders, they checked 136 kids with attention deficit and celiac disease, and they put them all on the gluten-free diet. Every child or every patient reported an improvement in all 12 markers of attention deficit within six months. 100% every marker, every child. If that were a drug... It would be on the front page of every paper in the country, right. but it's not. It's it's just an eating cell. There's no profit, and so right. no one carries this message out there. Yeah, you can't patent a gluten-free diet. Um, right. What if a, what if a person feels totally fine? They're like, I feel fine. I feel like a million bucks. Could they even even then? Could they have a gluten sensitivity? My goodness, yes. Now, first, I would ask what fine means for that person. Does fine mean, you know, you ask them, how are you? You say, oh, I'm getting by. You know, how are you? Oh, it's not bad today. You know, but uh, here's, here's what I recommend doctors do. And now for your listeners, here's the question. On a 1 to 10, 10 is the amount of energy you should have. 5 is half as much. Now, take your willpower out of the equation. And what's your body energy? When I ask the question that way in a room full of doctors, the people who are supposed to know how to be healthy, 150 doctors, maybe one person or two people raise their hand. Because if you phrase the question correctly, on a 1 to 10, 10 is the amount of energy you should have, 5 is half as much, and then you pause, everyone has an immediate answer. Oh, I'm fine. I'm an 8. I'm fine. I'm a 9. But then when you say, take your willpower out of the equation, you see the look on their face. You know, their jaw drops, and they go, oh. You mean my two Starbucks a day don't count? You mean my 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 Coca-Cola in the middle of the afternoon 
I can't count that. And <laughs> so how many how many people actually feel fine in our society? I wager there's not many. There's not many that have vibrant health. You know, the definition of the word health from Dorland's Medical Dictionary is optimal physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease. That's word for word the definition. So how many of you have optimal physical, mental, and social well-being? And not just the absence of disease. See, we think if we have the absence of a diagnosed disease, we're fine. We may be taking one or two medications, but we're fine because we take our medication. And gluten may be the underlying mechanism requiring you to take the medication, requiring that Starbucks to start the day, requiring that Coke in the middle of the afternoon so that you don't get those that 2 to 4 o'clock blues. Gluten may be the mechanism causing that underlying pathology, that underlying dis-ease that eventually will become a disease. Right. Look under the hood, get to the cause of the problem. Um, That's right. Let's talk a little bit about testing because the way that celiac disease has been tested in the past is by doing an intestinal biopsy, right? And that's very much, it has a lot of false negatives with that. Um, and, and a person can really have um, very uh, severe clinical symptoms with normal uh, biopsy, right? So how, yes. how yes. should celiac disease be diagnosed and how should gluten sensitivity be diagnosed? Oh, thank you for differentiating because they're very different. The You see, the awareness about gluten sensitivity came through the vehicle of the disease, celiac disease. So that's where all of the awareness slowly came about over many, many, many years. There's over 19,000 articles in the medical literature now on celiac disease, 19,000. Now think of that. Every researcher, every research team did their own research for months and months. They write the paper. They had all these patients. They check 19,000 different papers. So the foundation of understanding has come through celiac disease. The problem is that the definition of celiac disease requires total villus atrophy. It requires the shags be worn down completely and you've got Berber. So if you only have partial villus atrophy or if you only have fire in the belly, you've got the inflammation, that doesn't qualify for a diagnosis of celiac disease. So all of these studies where the, the researchers pick the subjects that they're going to study, they only study the people that have total villus atrophy. They don't include the others. So all of their conclusions come about from people that are at the end stage with total villus atrophy. As a result, what has been um, taught and the impression that the vast majority of doctors have as to what is celiac disease comes from the diagnosis, the testing, the observations of people who are at the end stage of the problem. That's like saying, you know, and if you have a patient, uh, Dr. Noel, you, you've had patients that have had heart attacks and they've survived and they come back to you and they say, you know, my cardiologist said that I had a previous heart attack. I never knew. Have, have you had that experience? Yeah, they say, oh, you have cardiovascular disease now and, and since they had their heart attack, but they actually had it before. Yeah, exactly. That's, they had a heart attack. How do they know they had a heart attack? Because the EEG 
or the ultrasound shows dead heart tissue. They've, and so they previously had a heart attack they survived that they just didn't know about, and there's dead heart tissue that's there, like my godmother with dead liver tissue. So what if the cardiologist got together and said, the diagnosis of cardiovascular disease requires evidence of dead heart tissue so that if you don't have dead heart tissue, you don't have cardiovascular disease. Well, that's utter nonsense. I mean, people laugh and say, what a silly thing to say. That's nonsense. That's the state of the art with celiac disease. If you don't have total villus atrophy, you don't have celiac disease. And the standard tests that are done are based on identifying total villus atrophy celiac disease. And the people they check to confirm that these tests really work are people that have celiac disease. So the tests, the common tests that are done, which is endomycium, transglutamidase, and gliadin or deaminated gliadin, those tests are very sensitive and very accurate. They're right on the money. And there are many papers that show they are right on the money. But what are they on the money for? They're right on the money for total villus atrophy celiac disease. And the researchers have shown in many papers that if you don't have total villus atrophy, if you only have partial villus atrophy, or you just have the fire in the belly, then the accuracy of that test drops down to as low as 27 to 33%. The test is wrong 7 out of 10 times. And those are the people that go in for the blood test. The blood test comes back negative. You don't have a problem. But if they go on a gluten-free diet, they feel better. Where's an, I call that the conundrum of gluten sensitivity. Where's the conundrum? Where's the problem? The problem is the test. The test is very accurate if you have total villus atrophy celiac disease. But if you don't, it's not accurate. Just recently, new tests have come out from Cyrex Labs, C-Y-R-E-X, CyrexLabs.com, where they're not looking just for the indicators of total villus atrophy celiac disease. They do look for that very accurately, and they'll find it. But they also look for the earlier indicators. They look for many different peptides of gluten, not just gliadin. They look for the top 10 different peptides. Remember I talked about the brick wall. And what in celiac disease, what they've looked at for many, many years is a 33 brick peptide called gliadin, alpha gliadin. That's the only one they look for. But the papers have been coming out since 1992 that show there are many different clumps of bricks when the brick wall falls apart. There are many. There are over 60 that have been shown to affect the immune system, and there are over 100 that have been identified. My question, why are we testing only one? And the answer is, we're not anymore. Now we have a laboratory that's doing the top 10 peptides of gluten, and the positives are coming back much more frequently as they should for people that have gluten sensitivity. It's just excellent to see what's happening. And the laboratory is doing something called QC2, quality control double, meaning they do every test twice to make sure that there's no errors in doing the test at no extra charge because they know that these are brand new tests and many in the medical establishment are not familiar with the test, so there's always apprehension to begin with, as there should be. So they've got QC2, and 
these tests are coming back highly sensitive, highly specific for gluten sensitivity and for celiac disease. What you're saying is, is that Cyrex Labs, they have this um, this way of testing where a patient can um, collect their saliva, right, and it's, and it's testing before the um, effects of, like, before, you know, full-blown celiac disease sets in, they can see, do I have celiac even before these things happen, right? And then also, if gluten sensitivity, they can detect that as well through these, these new testings because most other well, labs test just one type of gliadin as opposed to the, the, all the, you know, the different types, like you're saying. Well, that's uh, that's very. Uh, I I need to clarify a little bit of what you just summarized. It's a very good summary, and I need to clarify it. The saliva test only looks at transglutaminase and deaminated gliadins and total secretory IgA. It's a much more sensitive marker of early celiac disease. Okay. But it's only it's only looking at one peptide, the 33 brick peptide, because that's all they can do in the saliva. The blood test is much more comprehensive, and it looks at 10 different peptides of gluten plus transglutaminase. So the saliva, we have uh, four different, actually five, five different immune systems in the body, very different. The earliest immune response to a bad food coming in is called the mucosal immune system, mucosal-associated lymphoid tissue, MALT, and that's saliva, and that's also down in the bowels, that's in the intestines. So the, the saliva is the earliest indicator of a problem, but it's only looking at one peptide. So, and, and the numbers tell us that 50% of them are identified in that peptide, but that means that 50% are not, and it's one of the other peptides. So, so the, uh, the saliva is a good screen in general. It's a good screen. It's not expensive. It's good to do with kids or with someone um, who doesn't want to do a blood draw for some reason, you can do the saliva screen. But if the saliva screen comes back, if it comes back positive, you're good to go. Apply your therapies. If it comes back negative, you still have to do the blood test because the saliva test is not comprehensive enough. It's more sensitive to identify the main peptide, alpha-gliadin, it's much more sensitive, and it identifies the earlier indicators before the shags wear down but it doesn't identify all the peptides. So if it comes back negative, you still have to do the blood test. Got it. I love it. I love that this test is available. Um, I, and, and just for the naturopathic doctors out there who, who are still running the, the lactulose mannitol test, because I know that my, my listeners are very much like the public, you know, as well as some doctors who tune in as well. So I just want to get your perspective on that test, the lactulose mannitol test, or permeability yeah. of the gut. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, testing for intestinal permeability is very important, very, very important. And the test that's been done for 30 years is lactulose mannitol. It's a couple of sugars. The papers have been coming out in the last four or five years that have said it's a really good test to look for sugar absorption, but it's not a good test to look for what's, for, what's referred to as antigenic intestinal permeability, meaning stimulating the immune system. It's not a good test. It can be completely wrong much of the time. And the more accurate testing is to look for antibodies that are attacking the intestinal tissue. That's called zonulin and actomyosin network. And when you have antibodies attacking the intestinal tissue, you're chewing up the intestines, which is the mechanism of intestinal permeability. 
Cyrex Labs is doing that test also, which looks at antibodies to zonulin, antibodies to actomycin, and antibodies to lipopolysaccharides. Lipopolysaccharides are remnants of bacteria in the gut. Your discussion next week on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, here's the test to look for the damage from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth will be this blood test looking for intestinal permeability. Awesome. So, so excited to start so, running that test. Yes, me too. Uh, actually, I, I have been running it now. By the way, for your listeners, we recommend you talk to your doctors about these tests and get your doctors to register with Cyrex Labs to do the test. They are excellent tests. They're not expensive. They're going to make a world of difference in their practices for patients they never would have thought possible. And for your listeners, if your doctor won't do the test, you need to find a doctor who will. Cyrex Labs will have a list of doctors who are their customers. You also can go to my website, www.thedr.com, thedoctor.com. I highly, highly recommend any doctors who are listening, um, I don't, any healthcare practitioner, really, if you're a nutritionist or, you know, an acupuncturist or a doctor, I really recommend to uh, purchase um, Dr. O'Brien's DVDs because they have been major brain candy for me the last couple of days, and I've learned a ton. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm going to be able to offer much better care to my patients now than I did before, which I felt like I was already doing a pretty good job. So um, definitely worth the purchase, and it will add a lot to your practice. Um, I want to take a couple Facebook questions. One question is from Jackie, and she wants to know, can gluten disrupt my hormones? Absolutely. No question about it. Both androgens and estrogens. Oh, awesome. <laughs> okay, and then another question from Lilu. She wants to know, is there a way to get around eating gluten? Is there something that we can take to eliminate the effects? Because gluten-free pizza tastes rank. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to find a new source for your gluten-free pizza. Uh, there are some really good ones out there. You know, some of them taste like cardboard. You're absolutely right. Some taste like cardboard, but some of them are really good. And uh, uh, you just have to find one um, uh, that's good. But in the meantime, no, I'm sorry. You cannot be a little pregnant. You cannot fool the immune system. Those memory B cells get activated. And there are techniques out there that will cut the wires to the hot light on the dashboard so that your dashboard doesn't say, I've got a problem with this, meaning your dashboard doesn't say, you know, I'm getting headaches from this or I'm getting tired from this. Your dashboard won't say that. So there are um, uh, techniques that will do that. However, there is no proof that the autoimmune mechanisms from eating gluten get reduced. So you still get the thyroid disease, the MS, the brain deterioration, the lupus. You still will get those diseases. You cannot eat gluten until the studies are done and we are doing them now. They'll take a year to two years until the studies are done that show that you can reduce the production of the antibodies that are chewing up your, your tissue, the autoimmune antibodies, until we can show that, then you can't have any gluten. Good answer. And a couple more questions for you before I let you go. I, I could have you here for three hours because I have a million questions, but I know for the sake of time. Um, I want to mention a common thing that patients say is, um, Doc, I'm completely gluten-free. Why don't I feel like a million bucks? What's your answer to that? 
Oh, that's a really good point. And my my position is you should feel like a million bucks. If you don't, if you're taking that much time to get into detail of the quality of the food you're eating, to make sure you're not eating anything that's offensive, you should feel really great. And that's my term. You should feel like a million bucks. And if you don't, the question is why. And the first thing is, there's two answers to that. The first and most important is you can't just put people on the gluten-free diet. You have to put them on a gluten-free diet, and then you have to heal the damage that's been there, that's been produced. That's why children on a gluten-free diet diagnosed with celiac disease in it, in, as a child have a threefold increase long-term mortality because no one's addressing the tissue damage that's accrued there. You've got to address the tissue damage. Let me repeat that. You've got to address the tissue damage. I'm sorry, I don't think I said that clearly. You've got to address tissue damage. Do you get it, Docs? Do you get I it, do. listener? You've got to address the tissue damage. That means aggressive nutrition for a year to two years, not just an, a multiple to get by on daily life. You need to get more to rebuild healthy tissue. That's the first answer. The second is array number four from Cyrex Laboratories is called cross-reactive and sensitive foods. There are foods out there that if you eat that food, I talked about one of them earlier, that was dairy. If you eat that food, your body thinks that you're eating gluten and you keep producing the antibodies as if you're eating gluten. That includes milk chocolate, coffee, oats. There are 24 foods that you have to get tested on to see. Are you sensitive to one of these foods that cross-react with gluten? So we recommend you do array number one. That is the um, uh, uh, saliva test. If that comes back negative, then you do array number three. That's the blood test. If that comes back positive, so if one or three come back positive, then you do array number four. Do, do the cross-reactive foods, but don't do the cross-reactive foods until you find out if you're positive to gluten. Save the money. There's no need to do that unless you're positive to gluten. So you have That's to check so the cross-reactive foods. It's very, very common. We're startled to see how many people are coming back positive to cross-reactive foods. We're startled by it. We had no idea that it was this common and so many foods. Yeah, and that's what patients do. They go gluten-free, and they say, well, I don't feel better. I'm going to go back to eating gluten again. What's the point in me going gluten-free and all this hassle? And it's that, yeah, you could have a problem with gluten, but you might have a problem with gluten in addition to other foods, and your body is still reacting. So it's very important to not just guess. You want to test and see what's going on with your body. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. As of now, because of the new testing that's out, the new recommendations are, do not put someone on a gluten-free diet unless you're also recommending the cross-reactive foods because for many of them, it'll be a waste of their time. They won't get better because the cross-reactive foods are so very, very common. They're extremely common. The cross, that Someone has cross-reactive sensitivities uh, to foods that are common in the diet. Those foods are good for you in general, but not if you are sensitive to that food. If you're sensitive to that food, you get all of this. You have the potential of getting all of the same damage as if you're continuing to eat gluten. Got it. Wow, this this hour flew by. I'm amazed at how fast this went. Um, Dr. O'Brien, what what else would you like to leave with our listeners? 
today? Two things. Two things. One, for for the healthcare practitioners out there, if they go to my website www.thedoctor.com, there is a seven-hour DVD. It's it's professionally videoed of me doing the all-day seminar for healthcare practitioners. Doctors purchase that DVD, and if they take the test afterwards to demonstrate that they've watched the DVD, they got the information and passed the test, I list them on my website as a gluten coach with the caveat that says, I can't guarantee these docs are going to help you. I'm not responsible for what they do, but I can tell you they passed the test, they've heard the information, they've got the big picture. So, I'm, And there's no charge to the docs for this. There will never be a back-end charge. We, we just set up this stage of the website so that patients can find somebody who knows about this, comprehensively knows about this. The other thing is that for the listening audience, there's a two-and-a-half-hour DVD that I did a presentation to the general public with my friend Susan Vess. She's a nutritionist. I talk about how gluten can manifest throughout the body in many different ways with many studies and many slides. And Susan talks about how do you begin a gluten-free diet. Both of those DVDs are on the website. The last thing I would say is that for those of you that are wondering, how do I start to heal the gut? How do I start to rebuild and get rid of the fire in the belly? We put a packet together because there are many things you have to take. And most patients are not compliant with taking six or seven different bottles of things for a year. They just won't do it. They start, and they understand the importance, but one of the bottles runs out. They say, oh, I'll refill it next week, or I'll get it next time I'm in Doc's office or something. And then ends up they're taking three things or maybe four, and they think they're doing well and they're doing better than nothing, but they're not taking the full complement. So I put these packets together, one packet a day. That's all you take. And everybody can take one packet. You throw it in your pocket, you throw it in your purse, throw a handful hand of them in the glove box of the car so that wherever you are, you take one packet a day. It's going to help to start to turn around the damage that's been done. There are many, many nutrients in those six pills that are in there. So it's a guideline. So for our healthcare practitioners, use those packets that are called the gluten sensitivity packs as a guideline of what you want to recommend to your patients. For the listening audience, if you don't have a doctor that knows about this, start with these packs and find a doctor that knows about this. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Brien. I'm honored to have you on the show. I'm so glad we were able to coordinate our schedules and have you on, and thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Noel. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Definitely. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You bet. All right, guys, that is the show, Dr. O'Brien. That was awesome. I'm so glad I got to have him on the show. Um, Again, the website, so if you needed to uh, check those out, the doctor.com, T-H-E-D-R.com, Cyrex Labs, that's C-Y-R-E-X Labs.com. Definitely for uh, general public as well as doctors, check out both of those websites, um, as well as my website, drlaurennoel.com. I'm familiar with all of these lab tests as well, so um, if you're interested in having these tests done, check me out as well. And also resources for you too, pubmed.org. You want to do just some more research on celiac disease. Um, like Dr. O'Brien was saying, there are hundreds of thousands of articles on celiac and gluten sensitivity. So um, be your best, you know, scientist. Go on these websites, pubmed.org. 
It's a public medical um, database, and you can just type in, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and celiac or, um, you know, osteoporosis and gluten sensitivity. Just type these things in and just do some of your own research because you are going to be blown away how much research is out there. It's just not really talked about in the general, um, you know, public. And so um, I really encourage you to learn as much as you can about this, do your own research, um, and, you know, use these uh, resources because they are your, um, you know, best weapon when it comes to your health. And it's, as, you're, as you've heard tonight, this is extremely common stuff. And, you know, whether you have heart disease, cancer, you know, diabetes, osteoporosis, Alzheimer's, you name it, there is research that gluten is connected to these conditions. So very, very important stuff. Um, Thanks for tuning in to the show. Next week's show will be uh, Julia Roth. will be talking about um, diet and its relationship to your mental, emotional wellness. Definitely important topic as well. So thanks a lot again. Great show, Dr. Low Radio. I'm out. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.